BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Copfather. I am Craig Rommel, and joining us today is a real good friend of mine, class guy, and the expert, I consider the expert out there, on serial murders. We're going to talk about serial murders today and where investigations are going. Our next guest, Dr. Mike Arntfield. Mike was a cop for 15-plus years in London, Ontario, and is now a professor of criminology and cold case research at Western University, as well as the author of over 15 books, including three true crime Amazon top sellers, Murder City, Mad City, and Monster City. A TED speaker and recurring subject matter expert with a variety of true crime series now airing internationally, he has served as a visiting professor, guest lecturer at universities and colleges around the world, as well as the FBI Academy in Quantico, and also the Canadian Police College in Ottawa. His own true crime podcast, Suspect Zero, also premieres next month. How you doing, buddy? Good to see you, bro. It's, uh, always. it's been a while, you know, with the times we are. I was always fascinated with you, Mike, the first time I heard about what you do and jump you took from Frontline Copper in London, Ontario, to what you do now. Obviously, you're involved in a number of things, and I consider you the expert on these serial killers, cold cases, you get called out everywhere. And I wanted to have a chat with you about serial murders in Canada and the States. Right off the bat, I wanted to jump into, through your expertise and what you found, police investigations today compared to, say, 30 or 40 years ago, because we've talked and there's a lot of them in Canada, a lot more than people could imagine, and in the States. And what it's like now compared to the the tools today, compared to the tools that law enforcement and the private sector had, say, 30 or 40 years ago? Yeah, I mean, the first you know, five or six shows when you load Netflix or, or Amazon Prime or, or whatever are, are, are true crime, right? Some are good, some are bad. I've got a course on true crime that helps students sort of differentiate. Uh, but Mindhunter on Netflix is actually a, a pretty faithful and accurate retelling of sort of the the evolution of investigation into into serial murder and, and sort of actually just the crystallization of the term uh, serial murder, which actually was coined in the Weimar Republic, uh, so Germany, the interwar Germany in, in the late 1920s. Uh, and then given what happened, uh, sort of that was all, that the work they did was paved over by Nazism in World War II and then sort of gets reactivated in the 70s as Quantico. So the first step was actually acknowledging that there would be uh, an offender who, for reasons often only known only to them, 
would, would kill strangers in succession with intervals that varied wildly from, you know, days to weeks to months to years in between the crimes. So this was a new concept that obviously then uh, required that law enforcement sort of do some rejigging modernization. And the first really big step in the U.S. was what was called the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, which actually was first conceived in the 50s. They don't really have the tools to, to do it, but the case of um, the Glamour Girl Slayer, the, as it was known, Harvey Glattman, who was sort of the first really sexually sadistic serial killer to be recognized as such, and he was interjurisdictional. And the thought was, what if we could input a number of sort of um, figures that would allow, if it was maintained nationally, allow uh, mobile or interjurisdictional interstate killers for their specific modus operandi or, or signatures in their crimes, which tend to be unique to offenders, at least the signature part, uh, that if they killed in Colorado and they killed in you know, Florida or Louisiana, that it would trigger a, a match and that these guys couldn't use sort of these these, these jurisdictional boundaries against the police, and they could actually be tracked based on the character, common characteristics of their crime. So that was a violent criminal apprehension program, and Canada is known as a violent crime linkage analysis system. The difference between the two, the questionnaires that are completed by investigators are largely the same, um, but in Canada, it's mandatory that all homicides have this questionnaire completed. In the U.S., it's discretionary. And there's only about 40% of the agencies that actually complete them. So you've got these blind spots all over the country where they're not completed. And we have reason to believe that offenders, highly organized offenders, know uh, which uh, regions or jurisdictions are compliant and which aren't and may be offending in those that are not, which is why another group I'm part of in the U.S., uh, actually based in Washington, D.C., the Murder Accountability Project, we built our own um, BICAP, or Violent Criminal Apprehension Program System, which is publicly accessible. And we have every homicide since the 80s logged uh, mm. for, for search. So we know law enforcement is actually using that tool available at murderdata.org. And we've had task forces actioned in Cleveland and Chicago just in the last couple of years based on crimes that we've seen are linked and are the work of serial killers. And in Cleveland, it resulted in, in an arrest. And then hopefully in Chicago, there's about 51 connected strangulations uh, that's gone undetected by law enforcement, what we call linkage blindness, where just with everything going on, two or three or more crimes that are connected aren't seen as connected. Well, we've connected the dots and, and hopefully the rest will be made. Outside of the science side of this, like the DNA side of doing an investigation, so you're saying that there's the big change in the last 30 or 40 years is there's more cooperation between the different jurisdictions, different police services. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, uh, that was, and, and that, this is depicted really well in, I think, a number of, of true crime series and, and, you know, fictionalized stories. I'm, I'm thinking of, of the, the David Fincher film Zodiac, which depicted just, I mean, the the sort of fiefdom building between departments that are just, you know, yeah. a, a few minutes drive away. But as soon as you, you enter their jurisdiction, you know, they don't have a teletype machine or they're not on NCIC or they don't have this. We can't communicate with them. So, I mean, I think it's, it's difficult, I think, for sometimes members of the public to conceptualize just how siloed until recently these departments are. And in fact, sort of still are. So one of the things we do at the Mercantility Project is obviously tabulate homicides every year and by department. And 
we'll see departments show up that we haven't we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're not even sure how many departments exist in the United States. Could be anywhere between uh, seven and ten thousand. We don't know because new ones are created or new parishes created in Louisiana or state lines get moved for gerrymandering reasons and not state line county line. You know, you need a new sheriff's department. And so you've got a sheriff and a deputy. That's now a department that did not exist before. And then they have a homicide and it shows up reported to us. Well, I mean, it just it, it is not a uh, seamless sort of well-oiled system. It is a uh, system of sort it's a patchwork system that has improved a lot, yes. And there is increased cooperation and increased flow of data, um, but not always. And in fact, an interesting stat, uh, this is sort of obscure, but the Uniform Crime Reporting Act of uh, 1989 required, said basically it was optional for municipal and state departments to report murders to the Justice Department or to the federal government. But it required that the federal government report murders back to themselves. And what we found since then, the FBI, Department of the Interior, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, all these federal United States Park Service, which has about a dozen murders a year, have never actually tabulated or, or, or cataloged their own murders. So we don't even know, like, once we get that data, we're, we're in court for it now, once we get that, that could be tens of thousands of other murders, including serial murders that no one has even known about, that have been invisible until now. So wow. it's improved a lot, but obviously- There's um, more to do. There's more to do, there's always more to do. What is the template before, before the media jumps on and names, you know, Zodiac and all that. What, what's the template for law enforcement uh, for a serial killer? Scientific or scholarly definition is two or more victims at separate places and times by the same offender. Uh, the U.S. code um, that allows the FBI to, to get involved or, or for um, the federal government to be a resource used by law enforcement is three or more. So um, often they'll come in at, at two, but typically, I mean, codified in laws three. We recognize starting about 2006 at a, a symposium on this subject in Texas that, you know, why do we need to wait till three? If someone murders someone, takes a break, murders somebody else. I mean, a pattern is yeah. now developing. We don't need to wait for the magic number of three to recognize we've got, you know, a, a repeat offender. And at that point, you need to, you know, understand what you're dealing with. On the unsolved side of this topic, is there a number out there in, say, in Canada, coast to coast to coast, of unsolved serial murder cases going on right now? It's an impossible number to pin down, uh, in part because I mean, there's all this talk about police accountability and transparency and, and all these platitudes in, in Canada. Really, there's just a Byzantine system of, of government oversight that accomplishes very little other than making life difficult for hardworking officers. Um, is, is there a I've tried to get Is a guesstimate? Is there, like, what would you think? Like, are we talking dozens? Are we talking, a, you know, single-digit numbers? Oh, I think we're talking dozens. So for years it's been speculated, the Highway of Tears, that that's the work of at least one serial offender. And that's uh, in British, think, British, where was that? Yeah, BC Interior. Yeah, yeah. For years it's been talk of one in Edmonton, at least one, one in Calgary. I mean, Bruce MacArthur, I mean, in Toronto, yeah. there's an example of, of one operating uh, that no one even, I mean, media and people in the, in the community recognize that these disappearances were probably all connected, but that wasn't officially sort of on the books, quote unquote, as a, as a, as a suspected serial killer until well into his, his span of crime. Um, 
there's one in Montreal for sure from the 70s and 80s that's still not caught. I'm not sure if he's still active. And how many victims were on that one in Montreal? Seven or eight. So uh, a friend of mine, you know, lives in North Carolina, John Allure, uh, just published a book called Wish You Were Here. Uh, His sister, uh, Teresa Allure, um, was one of the victims. So he's been for years advocating that these need to be investigated as as a series. And uh, we have a a good idea who at least one of these these people is. Uh, In the U.S., the FBI always said, you know, they suspect only 1% of of unsolved homicides would work for serial killers. Well, I just mentioned, we still don't even know how many homicides we're dealing with in the U.S. So I think it's closer to actually 10%. Our software at our accountability project indicates presently, you know, 3,000-ish at large, which does not include the 400 or so unsub profiles that the FBI has for just the trucking industry. So long-haul truckers using what we call highway killers or commuter killers who are use the anonymity of the open road and, and sort of that lifestyle to, to procure victims. So that puts us in the U.S. of, you know, anywhere from three to, to 4,000, including that, that 400 or so. So if you wanted to use um, sort of a 10% rule of based on population differences and, and annual sort of homicide trends between Canada and the U.S., I would put, you know, Canada at you know, 300 or so. I don't think it's that high, but uh, certainly far more, I think, than, than people have suspected. I mean, people have always talked about this as a chiefly U.S. problem. Um, as my book, you mentioned, uh, How to Solve the Cold Case, you know, underscores Canada has, has its own major problem. The difference is there's less of an appetite, I think, in Canada to use the term uh, and to recognize that this is an issue. I gave a, a lecture for senior police officers, you know, before the, the pandemic, and uh, most of them in the room hadn't heard the term paraphilia before. Well, wow. uh, paraphilia is, I mean, one or more disordered sexual compulsions and fixations or fantasies, often violent, uh, that drive these crimes. And um, I mean, until you understand the nomenclature and, like you said, these templates, um, I don't think you're in a position to opine about whether you have a serial killer problem or not. So I, I think there's a lot of education to be done uh, within law enforcement still in terms of the root causes. And I do think we 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 prevent more now. I think through things like sex offender registries, which recognize again these gateway paraphilia that could escalate. So we monitor these people. Uh, DNA data banks obviously are helpful, and I mean we don't need to go on and on about evolution in DNA and, and the forensics, but it has helped, and, and I think served as a, a general deterrent for, for people who may have in the past, you know, escalated from peeping and prowling and voyeurism and other types of things to, to, to homicide. So, Mike, uh, recently, I, and I think a lot of people aren't going to know about this. Uh, I think the U.S. just made a big arrest down there involving somebody with an incredible amount of numbers. Can you can you talk about that a bit? I think you're talking about uh, the Sam Little case. So he was actually arrested a few years ago. And this, this is an important case to talk about. He was arrested a few years ago, uh, and he was in, in prison, California State Prison, for two murders. And a pretty switched-on Texas Ranger uh, investigating cold cases thought that this guy, based on MO and, again, common characteristics, might be good for at least one murder in Texas. So he goes out to California, interviews this guy who by this point is in his 70s doing life. And no one had ever asked him about his other crimes. And going back to people like, you know, uh, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis 
tool and, and, and some of these drifter serial killers. I mean, they, they will inflate their body count, even tend to body and, and you know, claim to have, you know, claim victims that they weren't responsible for just for the attention. Some of these guys whatever. like to brag, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's they're just sort of playing games. Whereas very quickly, Sam Little's confessions uh, were deemed credible and corroborated. And in part because from memory, and you can find these on the internet, from memory, he was able to sketch his victims as they appeared before he killed them. So uh, many of these, again, were never classified even as homicides, certainly not linked. And before he died, he just died um, you know, uh, about a month ago. Uh, about 85 of his hundred and so confessions have been corroborated, making him the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history, and one that no one even knew existed because no one had connected. He was a coast-to-coast, multi-generational killer, and no one had, because the space and time between his crimes, ever connected. And had he not opened up, uh, these would all just be consigned to the dustbin of history, and no one would have even known that these, these victims were, were murdered by, by the same person. So there's more of these guys out there than, than you think. Um, another just quick story is, uh, and more terrifying, is the case of Israel Keyes, also now deceased, killed himself in police custody, slit his wrists, uh, wrote some bizarre things. And what year? World. What year are we talking here, Mike? 2012. Okay. Well, so, so recent, actually, very recent. I, yeah. But no one's heard of this guy. And I'll tell you why. So this guy's terrifying. He, 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 he was raised in a family of 10. His parents were sort of nomadic religious zealots who just sort of were attracted to, I mean, initially they were, they were Mormons and Amish and part of a Christian fundamentalist neo-Nazi group. They just sort of bounced around whatever extremist cult uh, they would take them in. And he's thought to have uh, started killing as a teen. And for sure he started after he then relocates to Alaska. And think about the level of organization of this guy. His final victim was in Alaska. But before that, he would catch flights from Alaska to all over the U.S. He'd rent a car and drive as much as a day away and just pick random houses. And so, for instance, he, he wanted to kill a middle-aged couple and rape them both. So he just found a house where he determined after stalking it that you know a childless couple lived, kidnapped them. The bodies have never been found. He'd go to Home Depot buy a bunch of tools for dismemberment and torture. He'd bury that like in a bucket in a random place that he had marked, you know, in Vermont and fly back to, to Alaska. And he'd fly back a few years later, dig up this kit and again, just go hunting. And with no rhyme or reason, just whatever his mood dictates. And the reason you've never heard of him is, he also remains a suspect in a series of carjacking murders in Florida that stopped, believe it or not, uh, conveniently enough when he left that area as well. Um, men, women, children killed everybody. How many did he do, Mike? Sorry. How many do How many do they think he actually killed? So he put eleven skulls on his uh, painted eleven skulls in in his own blood on his jail cell. Uh, so we think at least eleven, and he confessed to about uh, nine or ten, but it's likely to be far more. And it came out that, and this is why there's not a lot of press on him because a lot of this is classified. It came out, he basically had two plans. He had a short-term plan and then what he called his big plan. And he confided in some army buddies about this. His short-term plan, and he did this with his final victims, was to engage in what he called uh, mass kidnapping. So he would kidnap, say, five or six people at a time, keep them in separate spots, uh, 
ransom them for just a small amount that a desperate family would pay, five or $10,000, not millions of dollars. Rape, torture, and kill them anyways. But by having five or six people in captivity at any given time collecting five grand a head, he's able to kill all these people and make, you know, 30 grand a week. And he's going to live off this. And his whatever his grand plan was, uh, the ATF and FBI got involved, and it involves some properties in rural across the U.S., and it's believed to be some mass genocidal event. So you have a serial killer who was planning some kind of mass casualty, dirty bomb, or, or, or whatever event, just hell-bent on, on destruction of, of, of people. So it's that latter big plan that it remains classified, and that's that's sort of why the press can't get a lot or hasn't been able to get a lot on this. Never heard, I have not heard that one before. Yeah, great book on it called American Predator, which is um, really the definitive account of, of this guy. He was influenced by actually Dean Koontz's book called uh, Intensity, about what they call in the book a homicidal adventurer who just, again, um, travels the country in, in search of, of people to, to terrorize. What's the medical term for somebody like this then, Mike? Like, what would he go come under? Well, so sexual sadist, for sure. So this is someone who is aroused by um, the pain, suffering, humiliation, and, and desperation of others. And this can be achieved through through any number of ways. But And this is why sexual sadists tend to be, like um, Israel Keys, sort of pansexual. So men, women, children, it doesn't matter. A, a warm body to terrify and mutilate is, is basically that sex for them. So you can imagine someone like that is 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 un, is is not subject to being corrected or rehabilitated. That is their orientation. Let me ask you a question. I just watched the uh, series on Netflix called The Night Stalker, uh, right. in uh, Los Angeles, which is a great uh, documentary. Yeah, would would, they, would he be as successful today? Do you think, with the technology and the difference in law enforcement? That's a great question. I think not. So um, they they recently just discovered an early victim of his, which was a young girl. So again, a sexual sadist, um, psychopathic tendencies. I'm not sure he would be a full clinical psychopath. I, I'm not sure if the test has been done on him, but certainly a sexual sadist. Or I'm not sure that necessarily the crimes in LA and then he's committed some other murders further north, that those would necessarily immediately be linked, but they had fingerprints on him fairly early on. And, and I think, um, it's sort of explored in the series, but I mean, people think the first case where a fingerprint was used to establish conviction, I mean, was the turn of the 20th century, but really fingerprint databases are not, are just a generation old. And I mean, so had they had a suspect, a known suspect to compare those prints to, they would have been able to catch them. But the whole idea of searching a print using APHIS or RACIUS or, or any of these, these databases is, you know, basically 90s onward. So, I think, yeah, had he offended just a few years later, I think he would have been caught hopefully early on. He's sort of the last vestige of those 80s yeah. serial killers who don't say that it's so long because of the deficiencies in technology that we now take for granted. Thanks, everybody. That's part one of two with our guest, Mike Arnfield. Check out part two in our next podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.